Okay, our scripture reading today is uh, uh, once again out of the book of Luke. Oh, please stand for the reading of God's word. I have that typed right here so I wouldn't forget. Please stand for the reading of God's word. So we're in Luke chapter 1, verses 46 through 55. It says, And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For before, before no, for behold, from now on to all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for, for those who fear him, and from generation to generation. He has shown uh, strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud to the thoughts of their hearts. And he has brought down the, the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, Abraham, Abraham and to his offering forever. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Well, good morning, everybody. My name's Kyle. Good morning. Thank you. Um, my name's Kyle. If you're new, I'm one of the pastors here at the church, and just want to encourage you. Um, we've been going through um, the Magnificat, which is the, the Song of Mary, a prayer that she sings after the angel gives her the news that she would uh, give birth to the Messiah. Um, what a wonderful uh, tradition that my family and I have around Christmas time as we watch that movie, The Nativity Story. Um, so I don't know if you've ever heard of it or seen it, but it's a wonderful um, tradition. I would encourage you to maybe try to find it somewhere. And it's really powerful, and it presents even the, the, the Song of Mary here that we get to enjoy. So um, just one, one little uh, extra for you this morning. It's, a, it's a, always a blessing for us when we do that. I hope that you have your Bibles this morning. We're in uh, Luke chapter 1. Um, this is my Bible. I hope you have one too. And if you don't, please come see me. I'll be glad to give you one. Um, I, have, I have a lot of them on my, my shelf in my office, so it would be my pleasure and joy to be able to share some of those with you. Um, <clears throat> now, I, when I was in high school, um, I played baseball for a small private Christian school. I, I remember listening to someone um, who became a, somewhat of a friend of mine. He w it was the first time I met him. He was uh, preaching a sermon, and he was telling about how he played um, I don't know, is triple-A, is that what the Paw Sox is, or whatever it's called? He played triple-A ball, which means he's good. Now, I was not good, right? I, I played, um, not only was I not, not good, but I stunk, and we stunk. Um, the team stunk. I didn't hold the team back. The team was holding itself back. We all stunk. <laughs> um, we played, I played every single year, ninth grade, 10th grade, 11th grade, 12th grade, four years in high school in baseball, and guess how many games we won in four years? None? Oh, that's, come on. Like, <laughs> give me a little more credit that we didn't stink that much, but you were close. Four. One game. We won one game in four years, and you should have seen us at that game that we won, right? We played school children. They were in kindergarten, but <laughs> they were probably, nowadays, high school baseball has probably about 25 games a season. Um, but we stunk. Did I mention that? So I'm guessing we probably had about 15, 16 games a season. So let's just do the math. That's about 60 games, right, in four years. One game out of 60 was a victory. Um, friends, the Bengals aren't even that bad, right? For any of you who follow, who follow football, sorry, Bengals fans. So that was humiliating. You ever been humiliated in your life, right? Um, being last... At the bottom, it's a place that few of us want to be in. Um, but my baseball team, though, we probably deserved it. Um, I, I don't really remembering, remember practicing ever, right? And then when we had practice, I didn't want to be there. So, so it, was un, it was deserved. Our failure was deserved, right? Um, but sometimes our failures, our losses, our humiliations are so undeserved. We did nothing to deserve maybe a fiancé that leaves us or a child that dies prematurely. A spouse of 15, 20, 25 years decides they love someone 20 years younger than you. How about living in a culture that believes that if you're poor, it's just karma, it's your fault. 
you probably were a bad guy, a bad person in some life prior, so, they, so that you're stuck in that condition of poverty and everyone, no one cares because it's what you deserve. So friends, being last can be crushing, can't it? Um, this morning, we are examining Mary's song. It's, like I said, the song that she sang after that she was told that she would carry the Messiah. And Mary was not a winner in her culture. She was not head of the class. She was not prom queen. She was not rich. She was not noble. She was not royal. She was little peasant Mary. And she sings, and what we're going to focus on this morning is verses 51 through 53. Okay? We've been going through this sort of systematically, her whole song. But this morning, we're really going to um, examine verses 51 through 53. And let me remind you what it says. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. This could be quite frightening or quite encouraging, depending on who you are and how your ears receive these words. So here we have this, this song prayer of Mary. If you recall in verse 50, she's sort of moving away from describing the mercy of God, um, saying that God is merciful, that is, he gives his undeserved favor, and here now she's demonstrating just how he puts this mercy on display. Exactly what does it mean that God is merciful? What does he do for us when he's merciful? So now, he's, now she's starting to unpack what the grace of God actually looks like. What God intends to do with the proud and with the humble. So there's two categories of people that Mary is talking about in this passage. You know, the irony of Scripture is that all throughout the Bible, the first are last. Isn't that true? And the last are first. So Mary positions these last people and these first people, and some of us might start thinking right now, what place you've been in for most of your life. And I hope that you actually start considering that. So Mary positions two kinds of attitudes, side by side, the proud and the humble, the first and the last. So in these verses, pride, she talks about pride. She, she tells us with great wisdom that we learn all throughout the Old Testament, we'll, we'll see that in a moment, that pride begins in the heart it leads to the hands, and it ends in the mouth. Okay? So try to remember this with me, right? Heart, hands, mouth. Okay? Heart, hand, mouth. The proud always deny the poor of heart, hands, and mouth. And you'll understand this later as we go. The, the way the proud feed themselves is by denying the humble of the rights they demand for themselves, okay? And Mary is saying that what God intends to do is to undo this, to reverse it. The experience of the rich, the famous, the wealthy, those who put themselves first, the proud in their heart, getting first place, when Christ comes, it's reversed. It's taken back, and this is what Mary sings about. So this morning, I want to look at two things. I want to look first at the first last reversal of the heart, hand, and mouth. I want to look at that first. There's a reversal, so I want to look at that reversal. And I want to close with a prime illustration. Okay, so let's begin with the heart, hand, and mouth reversal. Pride begins in the heart. We'll explain what pride means in a moment. Verse 51, he has shown strength with his arm. And he has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. So heart, hand, mouth, okay? He has shown strength with his arm and scattered the proud in the thoughts of their heart. Pride in the heart is a centering of the self. 
It's a putting yourself in first place. It begins in the heart, and that is the source of pride. And what I mean by a centering of self is that deep within our hearts, we believes we believe that we ourselves are the author of our lives. We define our purpose, and we decide our plans without any consulting of God or consideration that our lives do not belong to us. You see, pride reverses that. Pride says, I am my own Lord. So we don't take direction from something outside. <laughs> we don't take direction from something outside of our own imagination or intentions. So it's like this. Our will be done. My will be done. What did Christ say? Thy will be done. He submitted and surrendered everything about himself, mind, body, and spirit, to the Father's will. I don't belong to me. I belong to you. You see? <clears throat> this is what I will do, and that is what I will do. That's pride. That's pride in our heart. Pride in the thoughts of our hearts. Jesus talks about this, by the way, later on in Luke, when he says the ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. Good, good day, right? You just got a race, and you're making lots of money. The ground of a rich man yielded an abundant harvest. So he says, what am I going to do? I need to save this. I'll tear down my barns, and I will build bigger barns. What pronoun are you noticing a lot here already? I. And what did, what did we see Mary saying? He. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud. He has brought down the mighty and exalted the humble. He does this because we belong to him. But this man who is getting rich and making money and having crops decides, I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. I will store my surplus. And then I'll say to myself, self, you look marvelous. You have plenty of grain laid up for many of years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, be merry. See, isn't that what we plan for ourselves? Here's what my will for my life is. I would like to eat, drink, and be merry and have ease. And most of us set the course of our life based on that vision. But like in, it says in Isaiah 31, you made plans and you never asked me. See, that's the pride of the heart. This man pays no mind at all to what God wants because he was proud in the thoughts of his heart. Independent and insensitive to God, we make ourselves, perhaps without even realizing it, our own God. You see, because if we author the plan of our lives, who is the author? God is the author. He authors creation. He authors my life. He authors everything around us. But if I make plans for my life without consulting him, I have replaced him. I'm God now. And all of us, friends, are guilty of this. It's the very cause of any sin that you ever commit. If you ever say no to God, what are you saying? Not your plans, my plans. You know, you're listening to yourself now. Who's the author now? You see, anytime we ever sin, we deny that God is God. To this, God gives us this sobering warning because he bears his arm to the one whom in his most secret place, his heart, his most honest place, his truest place, pays no mind to the will of God or what he wants and is proud. And God promises this one word. You'll be scattered. Your plans will be scattered. Your heart will be scattered and shattered. It won't work. And one day, we'll all run into the reality of that scattered life. Oh, how often in my life God has scattered my heart, my dreams, my plans, because they weren't his. And I was Lord, 
And that was the place I finally started to realize that I'm not. And that I need to follow him. So he does this with his arms. Arms are good, right? We like our arms. You guys have some arms. Some of them are a little string, being, string beanier than others, right? Some of, them, some of you have strong arms, right? Dave Brailsford, I remember he had really strong arms when I first met him. I could not take him down for the life of me. Arms in the Bible are a visible expression of strength and authority. So in other words, in Scripture, when God is bearing his arm and doing work, his, we can see it. We see what's happening. Sometimes God does things that are invisible, and we don't know what's going on. But when God bears his arm in the Bible, it's a display of his power to his creation. That's what's happening. So in Jeremiah chapter 32, for example, he creates the universe, stuff that we can see, the planets, Jupiter, Mars. Ah, sovereign Lord, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. Nothing's too hard for you. And also, Exodus chapter 6, not only does he create and do impossible things with his, with his arms, but he actually judges and saves with the same arms. He judges and rescues with those arms. I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with my mighty acts of judgment. In the same verse, God's arm is saving and judging at the same time. So the powerful arm of God scatters the proud and gathers together the humble. How many people are proud of your string bean arms? You got some string bean arms? We need to hit the gym. It's been too long, and our arms prove it. <laughs> but God's arms are called mighty. They're strong. He shows strength with them. You know that it's impossible for a strong arm to be weak? Strong arms can only do strong things, right? This is Captain Obvious this morning, right? But sometimes that's what we got to do when we study scripture. Just say the obvious. God's arms are strong, and therefore, when he uses them, he does strong things with them, mighty things. I once... I get impatient, if you know me. That's a little negative quality about me, and my wife probably knows that better than anyone, and maybe my mom's in second place, right? I get impatient. So one day, I had a couch in my house, and I wanted to move it to my garage. Who can move a couch by themselves? Nobody, right? No one can move a couch by themselves. So I needed help. But did I mention I'm impatient? I don't want to wait two weeks for someone to grudgingly show up at my house to help me move a couch that they really don't want to help me move. But they're doing it because they have to because they're a family member or something. So I, I'm, I don't want to wait. I want this couch out of this room right now. So here's what I do. I decide, I say to myself, self, I'm going to take my strong arms and I'm going to do this by myself. I'm going to move my couch out of my house to the backyard, into the garage, up the stairs of my garage, because I have two floors on my garage. Up the stairs to my garage, and that's what I did. You know how I did it? Very slowly. <laughs> and with great pain and suffering and pulled muscles. So I step by step, I dragged this thing. I flipped it. I didn't really care about it. It wasn't like something I really was valuing, but I, I just wanted it in there. So I, you know, I, I lifted it up, and then I pushed it down, and I leaned it up against things. It turned and twisted, and finally I got it to the stairs, and one stair at a time, bunk, bunk, bunk. My arms, the reason I had to do it like that is because my arms need help. And so do yours, don't they? My arms need help. God's arms do not. You see... He doesn't need your help to lift a couch. And when you, read, when you read the scriptures, whenever God's arms come out, there's no other arms helping him. There's no angel's arms. There's nothing else. Man's not present. Because God's strength is exclusive strength. It's omnipotent strength. It needs not our help. And not only does he not need our help, but we can't stop him either. That's an arm wrestling match we lose every time. 
See, because God's arms don't need help. His arms always work alone. He has authority. This is what this means. The arm of God means he can do whatever he wants, but he also has the authority to do whatever he wants. He will do it, in other words. And no one can stop him. He sees, and he will act, and he will do what he says, whether we like it or not. And what he does with these mighty, impenetrable arms that no one can stop is scatter arrogant messes all over. That's, what, that's how he uses his power. To the proud, he scatters them. We build our house of cards, and God just with a little sniff of his nostril knocks it all down. And how many people in your life have been there and felt that? We had our plans, our structure, everything was worked out. This is where I'm going. And then in a moment, it's gone. It's done. Oh, that we might learn, that we might see when our house of cards comes crashing down by the mighty arm of God, that we should set our heart's affection, not on ourselves in pride, but on the only Lord that can save us. Yet the heart that is proud inevitably will have hands that are proud. To the heart, the hand. Verse 52. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. Pride in the heart leads to the hand. And here's what I mean by this. It's a demonstration of presumed authority and rights. What we believe we are owed in life. That's our throne. It's our authoritative will. The place where people come to kiss our hand. Right? That's, that's what kings do on thrones. Peasants come to serve them, to kiss their hands, and to do the bidding of their own will. And in this verse, God has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted the humble, those of humble estate. And friends, don't we do this in our lives when we have our will and plans for our life? We expect others to cater to us, to get in line with what it is that we think is the will of God, is our own will for our lives. So we set people up, friends, family, people that we need to accomplish what it is that we desire to accomplish with our lives. And if they get in our way, we get rid of them. We move them out. Like little kings on little thrones who decide who to get rid of and who to keep based on how they help you. Until the other humans get in the way and they slow us down from our will being done. You know, that's why husbands leave wives. Because we have a will for us and we have a throne. And on that throne, we expect our hands to be kissed. And if they don't get kissed, we are done with the person that's getting in the way of it. See? It's why husbands leave wives. It's why, it's why people abuse other people. It's why marriages and families decay and fall apart. It's not two people becoming one person. It's two people becoming me. Right? At first, it's not like that. But put five or ten years on it, and then it becomes like that. It's the two becoming me. And if you're not, and if, if you're not becoming me, here's what happens. You say you'll either get divorced or you'll put, a, you'll put a piece of tape in your house. And you say, okay, we'll stay married, but you stay over he there and I'll stay over here. And don't let's not bother each other anymore because we have kids, right? In Scripture, positions of authority are given by God. Did you know this? Human kings all throughout the Bible are merely, merely what God sets up himself and his sovereign will and purpose to rule the earth. When in the ancient Near East, it's important to understand sort of structure and how thrones worked, right? When one country, like, so let's say I'm, I'm the king of Babylon and I'm, I'm decimating the whole world and taking over all these countries. What would happen normally is they would take over the world, but they would set up like local rulers. So indigenous people as sort of governors. But I had the ultimate authority. So when one country <clears throat> conquered another in the ancient Near East, the defeated kingdom 
would maintain a certain identity and a certain tribal leadership. Does that make sense? So when Rome conquered Greece and Palestine, Caesar was the ultimate sovereign. They called him a suzerain. And he put Herod, Herod the Great, as sort of a puppet king. They called them vassal kings. He would govern Israel as a Jew, but the ultimate authority still was in Rome. Does that make sense? So they were called vassal kings. The vassal king of Israel um, at the time, by the way, what did Jesus say when speaking to Pilate? He said, you have no authority but the one given to you by my God in heaven. Isn't that true? So friends, just like in this sort of like human example of how Caesar would sort of have these kings ruling under his authority, we were created for the same purpose. God created you and I, all of humanity, to be vassal rulers, royalty, kings over his creation. And you can read all about this in Genesis chapter 1. God created us in his image to fill the earth and oh you didn't know that one as much okay that's all right subdue it rule over it right and how was adam and eve supposed to rule over the earth exercising their will and purpose no representing the king the god the creator the one that made them exercising his will and purpose in the earth and that they did until sin was found in their heart so humanity has built in royal status. Isn't that great news? You and I, all of us, were created to have built in royal status, to rule over God's creation. And what that means is that we all sit on a borrowed throne, representing the real throne, the true throne, the King of kings and Lord of lords, not serving our own agenda and will, but the Lord's agenda and will. Our thrones, our lives, and those around us are not ours, but his. And we are a part of his symphony. And any dignity, worth, royalty, or value any of us have, we only have because God gave it to us. And friends, oftentimes, so often, and this is the great sin that we all fall into, we use that status to promote our own will and our own agenda, and we use our neighbors, we use our hands to use other people to suit what it is that we want for our lives. And God promises a fall. You know why? Because in Daniel chapter 2, verse 21, he changes kings and he sets them up. That's our God. That's what he does with his mighty arms. He pours contempt on princes in Psalm 107. Yet the fallen, the humble, those under God and not over him that recognize it's not his throne, their throne that they sit on, but his throne, the, the humble person, not over God but under him, feels the warmth and strength of his mighty arms. Those arms save them and don't judge them. For them in Deuteronomy, the eternal God is a dwelling place, a home. And underneath are his everlasting arms that save. So scripture says, be wise, you rulers of the earth. For his wrath is kindled, but a little. But blessed are all, that all, are all they that put their trust in him. So God commands a reversal of position. Proud rulers are removed from power, and those oppressed by that arrogant reign are given their still warm thrones to sit on. Isn't that great news? Friends, if you're in last place, faith in Christ means that eventually he's going to bring you to first. And he's going to do it, not you. He has shown strength with his arms. He'll do it. All injustices are reversed not by our warring or fighting or coveting, but by God's final decree, his mighty arm. And when Mary sings about how God removes the mighty from their thrones and exalts the humble, she reminds us that the world is moving along under his direction and it's not moving out of control. You say, these evil kings, oh, woe is me. What an awful world that we live in. Are we forgetting who the sovereign is? That he's, the ones that he's the one that puts them in place and removes them. That exalts the humble and crushes the proud. 
So, friend, we are called to fear God, to surrender to his powerful arms. And when our hands oppress, when we're the proud ones oppressing, God sees. He sees you. He sees me. He knows what we're doing, and he promises to bring us down. But, friend, be comforted. Because when you've been oppressed unjustly, when you're in last place because of the wicked, sinful system we live in, God promises to make you first in Christ. It's his continued promise that he's going to take the keys back from the oppressor and put them into the hands of the oppressed. Job chapter 5, the lowly he sets on high, and those who mourn are lifted to safety. The heart, the hand, the mouth. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he sent away empty. Okay, so here's, here's the direction. Pride moves from the heart, right? I'm first to the hand, you served me so I can get what I want, to the mouth, now I get what I want, right? I'm taking it out of your mouth and putting it in my own. What do you need for food? Anyone know? What do you need for food? I'm asking you. Let me, let me hear you. What do you need for food? How do you get food when you go to the store? Think really simple. Money. You need money. Right? You, got, you go to stop and shop, and you give them your money, and you get your food. What is, so the, the hungry is filled with good things. So how do you get those good things to fill your mouth? Well, you need some money. How do you make money? Honestly, you work. Right. Okay, good. You work. You work. It gives you money. You go to the store. You get your food. All right. How do you make a lot of money? Work more or work. Don't work harder. Work smarter. Wisdom. If you're really smart and you work really hard, you're going to make lots of money, and therefore you're going to have a lot of food. You're not just going to have bread. You're going to have cheesecake. And you're going to have roast beef. You're going to have all the fancy food. So our wisdom, right, our heart, our wisdom makes us hard workers, hands, which, give, which gives us all our nice stuff. Isn't that true? That's how we think. So what's, what, what do we do? Okay, what, what do I get to do? I get to go to college. I get to get wisdom. I get to get a lot of wisdom because I need lots of money. Right? But it's, wisdom isn't just enough, though. You can be the smartest person in the room, but if you're not lifting your finger to work, you're going to be poor. Right? So you, not only do you need to be smart, but you need to be a hard worker. Right? So you need wisdom, you need work, and then you get money and you have your stuff, and therefore, presto changeo, you get your will for your life. Isn't that true? So what do we boast about most of the time? Our wisdom. Oh, isn't that guy so smart? Look how brilliant he is. He wrote a book on that. You want to learn how to do this? Go to that seminar at the Holiday Inn, and then you can be rich too, right? Get the, get the wise person's knowledge, and then you can, you can work hard and be like him, right? That's, those are the things we boast about. We boast about brilliance, but, but people who aren't so smart don't boast about that, but you know what they do boast about? How hard they work. I work two jobs. I got up at 3 a.m., right? Every single day, no one works as much as me, Right, like, and we boast about we we boast because it's all we got. We're not very intelligent, so we got to boast about something, right? So we can boast about how hard we work. So we boast about that. We boast in our wisdom and our strength, and we boast in our riches. And you know what Scripture says: boast in none of these things. Boast in none of it. We say that we have what we want and need because we are wealthy, and we say that we are wealthy because we have worked hard and we're smart. Friends, I want you to consider something. God doesn't take good things away from rich people because they're rich. He takes good things away from rich people because of this. Because they think that they don't need God. And I'm not saying all rich people. This is an attitude of the heart. That's why it begins. Poor people can think this too, by the way. It's up to me. My hands. My brain. He takes them away because, from any of us, he brings us down because we believe that God didn't give us all these things, but we created them. 
I'm smart because I studied. I worked. I'm rich because I worked hard. And we forget that if God so decided, we would have none of these things. And we would disappear into the night. So Jeremiah chapter 9 reminds us, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, his heart, right? Let not the strong man boast in his strength, his hard work, his hand. And let not the rich man both boast in their riches, their possessions, what they feed their mouths with. But boast only in this, that you know the Lord. That I am God. God says, I want you to brag about this, that I'm God. <laughs> brag about that one thing, that I'm God. Because the boasting of the proud will one day end. The bread is going to mold. How many people eat moldy bread? Right? I'm going to give you a little gross tip about me. I do. Sometimes if it's, there's not that much on the end, I'll cut it off and I'll eat it. The boasting of the proud is one day going to end. Their bread is going to mold. The hungry are going to be filled. Friend, if you feel your poverty, cry out to God. He has made you poor so that you can go to the rich one. And so that he could save you. So that you can stop thinking that you're the author, that you're on your own, that you're the most important person in the whole world. And, and you recognize he's God and he's the provider, he's the might, he's the strength, he's the work, he's the wealth that I need. You know what Hannah prayed? Just like Mary in 1 Samuel chapter 2, those who are full hire themselves out for food. Wait, whoa, whoa. Those who are full hire themselves out for food. You know what she's saying? You never have enough. Nothing ever satisfies you. But those who are hungry are hungry no more. She who is barren has seven children. How's that possible? But she who has many sons pines away for more sons. The proud are full, yet they set themselves out for more because what they have isn't enough. It doesn't satisfy because that's not what they need. The barren woman bears children, yet the, the woman with many children can never have enough children. The hungry are filled with good things. Not children, not bread, not the good things of this world, but God himself, the Spirit of God. And Jesus even tells this in Luke chapter 11. If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good things. What does he take away from the rich? Good things. Okay? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good things to your children, how much more will the Father in heaven give you money? No. Give you the Spirit to those who ask for him. You see, people take prayer verses out of context. Ask whatever you want, and I'll give it to you. You know what it's saying? Ask for the Spirit. Knock long enough, and the, God will give you the Spirit. Because He is what you need. The proud then will see, their hearts will be scattered, their thrones displaced, their bread spoiled. But the humble who fear God and love God through Christ are given new hearts, in Jeremiah 20, 31, 33. They're given a seat of honor in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12. And they're, they're bid to feast on the bread of life in John chapter 6. Bread that does not spoil or rot. And they're filled. You see? That's the reversal. That's the hope of the song. God, with his mighty arm, will, through humility, bring glory. But what's missing from this is a prime example, and I want to close with this. We're seeing sort of God's sort of economy. The first are last. He, he exalts the humble. But how? How does he exactly do this? And we learn this through the prime example, who I'm going to call Jesus Prime. That's the title of our sermon this morning. The paradigm of God reversing the heart, hand, and mouth, the, the humble becoming mighty, is seen perfectly in the picture of Jesus Christ becoming a baby, was God becoming a baby, dying for our sin. He is the prime example that we're to follow. In the text, Mary and God's people are examples of lowly people becoming exalted, right? Thank you, God, I'm, I'm your lowly servant, and you've exalted me. But who she's really talking about, the one who is really the lowly one, isn't Mary. It's Jesus Christ, the one that she's about to give birth to. And we know that because she's not speaking of herself anymore. She's speaking of someone else in our verses. 
Jesus is how God reverses our, our, our last place to first place. It's how God saves us. He's Jesus Prime. And God can save anyone through him. And how did Jesus Prime save us? Not, not by lightning bolts from his eyes or fire from his mouth. He saved us through his own humiliation. This is what Mary's singing about. The exalted one, God, who is God that created all things, voluntarily lowers himself. The one who is first before all becomes last. Jesus Prime, the champion of glory, through humility, demonstrates, number one, that he brings glory through humility through being born of a woman, Mary. Think about this with me. How did life enter the world? Through a woman, Adam and Eve. It's also how death came into the world. So how does, how, how does God bring life back to the world? Through a woman. But not an exalted one. Not a, not a queen. Not a, a wealthy prom queen. Through little peasant Mary. The fall from innocence and happiness the antagonists and mother of sin, Eve, introduced death to this world with her husband, the man, Adam. Right? Now Mary, a peasant, would give birth to a baby, a boy, and bring life back. See what's happening? God is saying, what you blew, I'm going to restore. You were up here and went down here, these guys are down here, and they're going to bring you up here. Does that make sense? Do you see the wisdom and the beauty of this? Mary, the, excuse me, Eve, she was created in a condition of immortality. She never was created to die. She had the highest place in creation with Adam, the highest place of freedom, the highest place of authority, the most exalted of all creatures. But she loved her will more than God's disobeyed and brought death. And what happens with Mary and with Christ? The lowest of creatures, racked with, with Mary in particular, racked with sin and bondage and humiliation. What does she pronounce to the angel? She says, let it be as you say. That's what Mary said to God's command. She said, yes. Eve said, no. Eve on her throne said no, but Mary, in her humiliation, let it be so. Eve had every reason and all the proof that she needed that a yes answer to God was to her advantage. And Mary had none of that. Under the fog of sin, had far fewer proofs, much less clearer a picture than Eve had so that you might expect Mary to say no. But she didn't say no. She said, yes, let it be so. Oh, and how few of us say, let it be so to God. Because we're proud in our hearts. And God is not in there. We're in there. Jesus, prime champion of glory through humility, demonstrates also this by taking on the flesh of a baby boy. The eternal one took on little hands and little feet and little toes so that he could suffer and die. While Adam was created an adult man full of wisdom. Jesus born not in nobility but in a cave, Adam in the paradise of God. Jesus couldn't find a place. Mary couldn't find a place for Jesus to be born. Joseph searched in vain. For the one who created all places couldn't find a place. There was none. Adam, who was he welcomed by? His creator, a naked woman, which he would one day name and marry, one that loved him, on day one of his life. And who was Jesus greeted by? Naked animals. A peasant mom and an earth that simply yawned at his arrival. 
You know, the local inn had a place for everyone. Back then, inns, that's what they, they, they were for rich people, Roman soldiers, anyone with a coin, anyone with some cash. And one, one brilliant writer says this, when finally the scrolls of history are completed down to the last words in time, the saddest line of all will be, there was no room at the inn. This stable, this cave, the filthiest place on earth, touched the naked skin of Christ and became holy. The dirtiest place on earth touched the naked skin of Christ and became the purest. And friend, that is our story. That's the gospel. Our sin, our lowliness, our, humi our humiliation, when it touches the face of Christ, becomes his glory, his righteousness. We become his purity. The eternal one, the God that created a home for all of us is homeless in it. The, the one that created the sun to warm the earth is getting warmed by cow breath and oxen. The eternal word that spoke something out of nothing is now speechless and cannot speak himself. The helper is helpless. Bound in a blanket, covered not for his own sin so that he could cover ours. Isn't that great news? You see, the glorious one humiliated himself so that he could make us glorious. Jesus Prime. He shows humility as the road to glory, not just through Mary, not just through his birth as a boy, but through his tragic death. Born not to conquer through might, but through his own sacrifice and suffering to die naked on a cross, ignored at birth, abandoned at death, yet risen to glory. Are you in last place this morning? Oh, I got good news for you. God put you in last place so that if you believe in the one who is in the farthest to last, Christ, if you trust in him, he'll put you first. And he'll give you a seat by his side in his eternal kingdom of love. What are you waiting for? Isn't that good news? That's great news. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud and the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he sent away empty. Who are you? Are you first or are you last? Oh, I hope that you'll demote yourself and promote Christ. Because if you do, he'll promote you. Through humility comes life. And that means that you need to be scattered before you're gathered back together. You need to be brought down before God can lift you up. You need to be emptied before you can be filled. No one ever gets saved without being scattered, brought down, or emptied. So if that's where you are, I got some good news for you. You're probably there because God wants you to put you first. Trust in him. Repent and believe the gospel. Amen? Let's pray. God, we come to you this morning with hearts of reverence. The Holy One of Israel, the God of creation, who set the earth in motion, who gave me life. Oh God, how often we ignore you. We use you as a prop so that we can pull off the things that we want to do with our lives rather than serve you and surrender to you. Friend, will you surrender to him this morning, finally, once and for all? Say, God, you're God. I'm not. And I need you to save me. I need your mighty arm through Christ's death and resurrection to lift me up. I'm trusting that he'll do that for me. Oh, friend, if that's you, you're saved.
walk in the newness of life. God, we ask you now that as we prepare our hearts for communion, that you would bless us and help us remember what you did for us and how you were broken. The one who could not be broken became brokenness so that we would be whole again. In Jesus' name, amen. The Lord's Supper has been part of the weekly worship service of gathered followers of Jesus since the birth of the church. It is a practice the local church is instructed to perform regularly and soberly. At Refuge Church, we approach the table with reverence and gratefulness as we serve Jesus together as members of his body. Receiving the Lord's Supper is a public declaration of faith in Jesus Christ, marked by a new affection for him and willingness to follow and obey him. It is an identification with Jesus and his people. If you are not yet a follower of Jesus, we ask you to simply observe the church in their demonstration of faith and love to Jesus and to each other, and to do something far more important. Seek the Lord in silent prayer. Consider what you have heard and what he has done for sinners like us. None of us, not even followers of Jesus, should take the supper in an unworthy manner. So before we come to receive the elements, let's examine ourselves and confess to Jesus, who is faithful and right to forgive us whenever we ask. As the music plays, you may come forward when you're ready to receive the elements. If the ushers are not up front, they will leave the elements on the table in front of the pulpit. Remember that it should be our blood in this cup and our body broken on this plate. Instead, it was Christ's on our behalf. Scripture reads, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. <laughs> 